this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They might have overcome adversity or they might still be on their journey. With stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Today I'm delighted to introduce a man who has overcome a wealth of adversity and is proving every day that what doesn't kill you really does make you stronger. Ed Jackson is a former professional rugby player who in 2017 was involved in an accident which left him with a broken neck, crushed his spinal cord and the prognosis that he would never walk again. But that was not about to stop Ed in his tracks. Seeing his situation as lucky that he got the right help at the right time immediately after his accident, Ed's focus on his recovery has been ever positive as he has worked to not only walk again but to climb mountains too. Ed has shared his journey with his online followers by blogging ever since his injury and now he's sharing his narrative with the masses. His first book, Lucky, charts his unbelievable story so far and was released just yesterday. What an amazing guy. Thank you for joining me today, Ed Jackson. Absolute pleasure to be here. Lovely to meet you, Katie. Ah, pleasure too. So was that accurate? Did the book come out yesterday? It did actually come out yesterday, which is uh, terrifying to be honest, um, mm. but exciting, exciting at the same time. What was it like writing it? How long did it take to put it all together? I started a blog when I was in hospital, actually. After a couple of weeks, I started using voice notes. I couldn't move anything. So Alexa became my best friend. And it was more to just offload thoughts out of my mind to help me get to sleep. Because obviously, you know, you've got a lot of uncertainty going along, a lot of dark thoughts. And um, I just sort of wanted to have that mind dump to help me get to sleep. And then naturally, about two weeks later, one of my friends... Um, was in there and I woke up in the middle of the afternoon and he was going through all of my voice notes and listening to them you know when you have a private diary Cheers. yeah exactly yeah. and he said two th- he said two things to me he said first of all you're a weirdo I was like cheers mate and then second of all you should make some of this public because I think it could help people so they persuaded me to make that public which was very against my nature you know I was quite a private person um, I suppose I'd been brought up as you know a rugby player never show any weakness never show any emotions so that was quite a hard process for me but once I did I started realizing 
that it was helping other people. And actually then they mm. got in touch. Other people were getting in touch with me who had been through similar things before. So it started really helping me too. So I actually started blogging daily. So when it came to writing the book, I had a big bank of content. Luckily, I had about 200,000 words worth of stuff to, to build from. But to actually see a book in 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 my hand now um, is something that I never imagined would happen. And uh, it's quite exciting. Yeah, it's quite surreal, isn't it? Because um, you talked there about other people getting in touch that have gone through similar things. And that's something I experience all the time too. And and like you, what happened to me sort of turned my life upside down and felt quite rare. But when I wrote a book, I realised it wasn't rare and other people had similar injuries from different types of you know methods and attacks and accidents. How common is it what happened to you? Because I feel like what happened to you is so rare, or is it not? Uh, well, yeah, exactly the same experience as you, Katie. It's like you think it's really rare and you don't really know anyone with a spinal cord injury until you've got one. And then mm -hmm. everyone comes out the woodwork. Um, whatever whatever happens to you in life, you always think at the start, I was like, oh my, how has this happened to me? You know, of all people, yeah. I can't believe it. And then you realise actually... There's loads of people out there who have who've been in similar situations, who are going through their old, own traumatic experiences. And by sharing these things with each other, it really does help. Do you ever get the uh, funny stuff? I mean, it's only funny if you're having a good day uh, where people want to have common ground. So like people say to me, I burnt myself on the oven once. Look, look at this. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, OK, that's similar. Like, do you ever get people telling you that like, they have a sore neck or anything like that? Um, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I do. I think that I mean, first of all, I really enjoy the dark humour side of things. I think that's really helped yeah, me and I like me getting together and joking about, you know, with spinal cord injuries, you get a lot of like bladder and bowel problems and, you know, everyone mm -hmm. finds finds those things funny. Um, I do find that. But yeah, the sympathising thing, I mean, I limp around um, because as a result of my spinal cord injury, my broken neck, because the nerve damage has affected my whole body, you know, and the most common one I get is, oh, I've, uh, I've, had, a knee, I've had a knee injury as well, or I've twisted my ankle too, because I'm limping around. And <laughs> um, what were your circumstances? Were you alone that day then? No, I was with, um, it was a family friend's barbecue. So I was injured okay. from a rugby, from rugby and uh, I'd come home to my parents' house, went round to the, to our family friend's house. And um, fortunately when they had a feature pool, so it was like a rock formation down one end with a waterfall and I thought it was deep. I couldn't see the bottom because oh, okay. the waterfall had mm -hmm. disturbed the water. And I was quite a lot heavier back then. I was about 18 stone. And I jumped up and went in pretty steep, hit my head straight on the top, straight on the top of my head. Um, mm. And I'd hit my head. I knew I'd hit my head a lot before, having played 10 years of professional rugby, but I hadn't hit my head that hard before. But I didn't lose consciousness. And I went to stand up to see if I was bleeding in the pool. And that's when I couldn't move. But fortunately, my dad and um, my friend were in the pool. So they pulled me to the surface because otherwise I would have drowned. Um, mm. So I got very lucky in that respect from the start. And then you know, that's that word again, lucky. But my, <laughs> my, da my dad is also a retired doctor. So he knew straight away there must be something wrong with my spinal cord if I couldn't move. So they, they floated me and kept me still in the pool until the ambulance right. came. Um, so luckily there were people there. Yeah, people wouldn't know to do that, would they? Like that's, that's not common knowledge that your people would have dragged you out, moved you around mm. and that would have been the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And that's a pretty usual thing with spinal cord injuries. Sort of 80% of the damage is usually caused after the accident, especially when you've got an unstable 
um, fracture so I dislocated my neck so any sort of movement would have done more damage and naturally you know when you're on holiday or with your friends or you're drunk they just want to get you out the water as quick as possible understandably mm. but that can end up causing more damage so yeah I was pretty fortunate my dad was there for sure. I did wonder if it ever at points I don't know now but in during your recovery did it not feel real because the comparison of your life pre this accident to sort of the injury is so different you know for somebody to be so sporty so athletic to the point it's their actual profession that they get paid for and then to have this injury you know the, the whole st- I can see why it's a book because it's such a huge story does it does it not feel real sometimes definitely at the start um, it didn't feel real. I think, as you said, it, it's that contrast um, and something that you've been through as well. It just, it's a complete flip of the coin. And for me, I suppose my body was my tool. I was the big guy who would run around and you're athletic and a professional sportsman. And then the next thing you know, you're just sort of a head on a pillow. And the one thing you've lost is your body. But over time, I suppose you come to get used to that. You start to accept certain elements of it. And the more you get used to it, the more you come to terms with who you are now, the easier it is to deal with it. And that was a process. It still is a process. You know, it is still. Mm. I still get frustrated sometimes when people are overtaking me going up the mountains and things like that. But then you've just got to remind yourself how lucky I am to still be here in the first place, considering the level of injury I had and Mm, it sounds like you always had that kind of growth mindset where you were able to look outwards and then look inwards and, you know, like you said, have perspective, uh, feel gratitude because some people end up really bitter and have the opposite mindset. Yeah. And I think some of that was probably a coping mechanism, you know, talk mm. about reframing. And um, I think it was maybe my brain's way of protecting myself and trying to take the positives mm. out of it. But as soon as I started realising that, you know, I wasn't unlucky that I broke my neck. I was lucky that I didn't die, didn't drown, you know, and just flipping mm-hmm. those scenarios round um, in my head, it helped me deal with it a lot more. And I, I don't know, I don't know if you found that as well. Like, was that process that you went through too? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, one of my sort of more life-changing injuries was um, being blinded. And originally it was both of my eyes and I had a lot of irrigation and steroids And my right eye um, is now 75% sight, whereas if my left eye is blind. So I always think life could have been so different if I had lost eyesight in both of those eyes. You know, like I wouldn't be able to drive. I I wouldn't be the independent person that I am. So like you, I feel like I'm the lucky one, you know, that I'm doing all the things that I'm doing. And I had like funny experiences of going onto other wards that made me not necessarily grateful, but just added like the dark humor. I remember I had to go to the plastics ward and I remember the other patients saying to, because visually I always looked the worst in the burn unit because it was such a big burn. And this one lady said, don't you worry, once you have plastic surgery, you'll look a lot more normal. And I was like, I'm being discharged today. I've had the plastic (laughs) surgery. (laughs) And at the time, I mean, it kind of made me laugh. And then I had to spend a lot of time on like a gastro ward. Um, You know, I had a lot of other problems. Like you said, people don't realise all the other problems that you have. And I'd swallowed acids. I had a lot of problems with my esophagus, my stomach. And I was really thin. I had to have a a feeding tube for about two years. I couldn't eat solid food. And so because it was NHS, NHS. I was on a gastro ward with um, obesity patients that had had NHS gastric bands. And I was like six and a half stone, five <laughs> foot one. And everyone's
was like, your guest trip band's done wonders for you. <laughs> I mean, you look a bit old in the face. It's aged your face. <laughs> I was like, no, I haven't had a guest trip band and the face is not aged. I'm actually 24. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it gave me perspective. Like everybody's got their problems and everybody's had their traumas and it's all relative to them. Um, yeah. I suppose it kind of taught me that trauma is a part of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, isn't it? When you get used to that bar, you move your bar, your basic level. So I, I, at the beginning, I was just hoping to get the use of my arms back. And I was like, if I can become independent mm -hmm. again, then I'm happy because I just didn't want it to affect other people's lives. I didn't want it to affect my wife's life and my family's life. I already felt guilty enough for the position that I'd put them in. So then once I got the use of my arms back, I was, I felt amazing. You know, I managed to, I, you know, mm -hmm. my arms are still affected, but I was wheeling myself around. So everything after that became a bonus. So now because I'd moved my sort of bar of happiness from, it would normally ha would before being a rogue player would have taken me having to get man of the match or, you know, winning trophies to make me really happy. Now I'm just happy that I can stumble down the stairs in the morning and brush my own teeth, you know, and it's funny how just that perspective yeah. changes and it completely puts a different color on your whole life. Honestly, I can so relate to this. Like I remember being like a 20 year old, like really young, glamorous girl who'd go clubbing. And if I had a blackhead or a spot, like I felt ugly. I hated my skin. It was a massive deal. Whereas if fast forward after what happened, I was like, oh, I have a nose. You've rebuilt my nose. Uh, great. I can breathe without tubes, like love a nose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really yeah. need that. Um, I was really interested actually what you thought about this, because like you said, as you go through like a medical journey, whatever you can get and restore back is an absolute bonus and you're so elated. And it's amazing how resilient we are when you get like shit news after shit news and you and you just get on with it. And even society this last year, every time the goalposts change with the government, people do manage to live and get on with it. But I feel like your mental strength is off the scale compared to your average person. Do you think this is something to do with rugby where it's been ingrained in you that the, you know, sport is very mental as well as physical. Were you born this way? Does it come from somewhere? Like, what is it? I mean, I've thought about this a fair bit and, you know, it's not just me and it's it's not just you. You know, there are a lot of very resilient people out there. And is it nature? Is it nurture? And I think the answer is always it's a bit of both. I think there's definitely a bit of luck involved with you're either, you know, an optimistic person or a pessimistic person. But also I think resilience can be built um, by putting yourself in situations where there is an option to fail and by failing and learning from it and moving forward. And naturally... In sport, you know, there are ups and downs on a weekly basis. You know, you win one week, you lose the next. You get you get picked one week, you get dropped the next. There's injuries, you know. My neck my neck was my seventh operation by the age of twenty-seven. Oh. You know, I'd wow. it's it's a dangerous sport. So you get used to these ups and downs. You know, I've been released from clubs before, but then I've been selected, you know, for others and and over time the highs don't get as high and the lows don't get as low. And I think that that puts you in a good position for when something traumatic comes along because you've been used to dealing with the lows before. Now, having said that, you know, I've never experienced anything on this scale. Um, but also from a rugby perspective, recovering from a spinal cord injury is spending hours and hours and hours doing physio 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's putting hours and hours of physical effort in. And that's something that I'd done my whole life. And yeah. you know, if recovering from this was spending an hours and hours and hours in front of a spreadsheet, some people would recover pretty quickly because they're very good at it. I would still probably yeah. be in a hospital bed because I'm useless mm-hmm. at it. It's just a lot of luck. There was a lot of luck involved in that respect, I think, too. Mm. Do you think you were always like a optimistic, positive person then even before this? Because that's how you come across now. I think... To a certain extent, I definitely wasn't, you know, a negative person, and um, but I wasn't overly optimistic. Now I seem to, I, in fact, my wife gets fed up with me sometimes because she'll come back and she'll just want to have a whinge after a bad day at work. And now I'm just like, come on, look at the bright side and all this sort of stuff. She's like, shut up. Can I just complain for once? And I'm not like yeah, that all the time, yeah. but I'm definitely more that way now. And, and I think it's because you do get a different point of reference in life when something like this has happened to compare things to. So before those Mm. things that used to make you angry or frustrated, you're like, well, come on, in the scheme of things, does that really matter? Um, Mm. But the interesting thing for me was going through that process naturally and then learning about it in psychology afterwards and taking an interest in mm-hmm. philosophy and psychology since and understanding the mental processes I went through. And that was partly why I wanted to write the book um, and share it further is because obviously hands-on, I wanted to hopefully help some people who are going through a similar traumatic experience. But actually there's so many lessons that I now take forward in life. And I'm not, I'm sure you find that the same that, that can benefit anyone um, and you sh- you don't yeah. have to go through a traumatic experience to realise it. Hopefully you can share those messages with people and they can learn from them anyway. The book kind of sounds like a bit autobiography, but also self-help as well. Would that be right? Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's fair enough. It is autobiography, but at the same time, I only wrote it because of the takeaways it can give people. Mm. And I didn't want to sit here and preach science to people because I'm not a scientist and I don't have that background. It's it built in life lessons and because it was a day by day account, cause I had actually lit, I had actually written a diary. Um, it's, it's, it's a real account, you know, it's not from memory. It's actually someone going through a life changing process day by day, but also the lessons are weaved into there too. And I hope by the end of it, the outcome is when someone puts the book down, they feel good. They feel happy. They've read an entertaining story. Hopefully it's quite funny as well. Um, but also they've taken a lot of lessons from it that they can hopefully instill in their their own lives and move forward with without having sat there and felt like they've read a self-help book. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role play, uh-huh. like, um, like, with relative stuff. No. Yes. No, that's a And hard I couldn't, pass. and I said, I said, um, they no. wanted, they first said, Da- like dad, daddy, oh, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe like I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast. Dinner's on me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. 
To listen, just search Dinners on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. It's interesting because you talk like you're very honest, but also almost very matter of fact about something that was life changing. And I'm thinking, well, four years, I mean, four years is like early days, do you think, for such a big thing to happen? Um, like if I look at myself, I think in a few years time, I've lived life longer with the injuries than I have without. Um, so if I try to take myself back to the day it happened, I'm forgetting some things now. So I can't remember what the weather was like that day. I can remember what I was wearing, but like things are starting to feel so distant now. What about you? Do you ever take yourself back to that day? Do you remember it all? Do you ever play it out? I remember it all vividly. I didn't lose consciousness. I've never really had a problem recalling it. And I think it was something that I wanted to do quite early on as to see if there was going to be any demons there, if you like. And I think because I didn't really have anyone else to blame but myself, it was easier for me to process it in a in a weird way. It was like, come on, you're an idiot. But you realised it is an. I realised very early on it is an accident, um, and it could have happened to anyone. And that was one thing I realised that when I was on on the spinal unit was I was in there with a complete cross section of society and people that who had had their injuries in the in the weirdest ways, and no one deserved to be in there. You know bad things happen to good people in the same way good things happen to bad people. So as soon as I removed that mm -hmm. sort of blame, it was a lot easier to move forward with it. And actually after hospital, first thing I did was go straight back to the pool and get in the pool. Oh, wow. Um, just to see if there was any issues. And everyone was like, I couldn't believe you got back in the water. I was like, it wasn't the water that broke my neck. It was the bottom of the pool, to be honest. The water just actually probably mm. slowed me down on the way in. But in terms of a process of accepting... That's interesting for me because I do think that maybe I've been able to accept it more because there was no one else at fault than me. And people are like, well, obviously, you know, you you must just blame yourself then. And I understand that these things can happen and it was an accident. But in your situation, and I've known other people with spinal cord injuries who other people are to blame, whether it be drink drivers, etc. How was mm -hmm. that process for you in terms of acceptance and blame? Yeah, I suppose mine is more around forgiveness. And I always feel like um, if you're if you're angry, um, who are you really punishing? You know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that are really mad at people. And though those other people don't think of them at all, or don't even know they exist. So I suppose like when you go through any trauma, whether it's accident attack, you have to psychologically set yourself free. And you know, recovery takes so much energy, like it's so draining. So I couldn't be putting my energy into anything that wasn't productive, you know? And I think if something's a man-made act, I always think um, hurt people hurt people. So again, just like you, that word lucky or fortunate, gratitude, whatever you call it, like I just feel so blessed. And sometimes that the, these dark times and these dark places we go to, they they happen to the, help us recognize the light when the light comes. That's amazing. I, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's always a reflection. Everything's got a positive intention. Even if that act yeah. is throwing acid at someone, the intention <laughs> is to try and make them feel better because they are hurting so bad. 
mm, you know and yeah. when you realize that i suppose but i mean i don't I, I don't know how i mean it's 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 a process isn't it i suppose yeah and i don't operate i on that level of vibration that's not my energy level like i'm a different energy i'm a different vibe so it's like that whole michelle obama quote of they go low we go high like people's reactions and actions to me doesn't make me respond on their level i still stay on my level and yeah so you were told right you know obviously like anyone that's been into hospital with, with serious injuries will know there's this moment where consultants or people like gather around the bed with like the notes and they tell you how it is and like I guess you were told you'll never walk again and in your introduction to this pod I talked about you climbing mountains which some able-bodied people will never do um what happened that day when they gave you that that life sentence yeah I mean with a spinal cord injury, you have something called Asia Tests, which is called, which is the American Spinal Injury Assessment. Every day after the accident, every twenty-four hours, they'll do. It takes about two hours. It's pin pricks and movement, and it they test your sensation, temperature, and they do that every twenty-four hours for seven days, and then they give you a prognosis, you know, prediction of um, what your, you know, what your outlook is. And on that seventh day, they came in and basically said that um, I was category Asia A1 still, which was the highest level of spinal cord injury. And and I had to pretty much, they, they were hoping for the use of some of my arm, some of the use of my arms back so I could regain some independence, but I wasn't going to be walking again. You know, it obviously hits you like a ton of bricks. It's like being smacked in the stomach because to say it was a complete surprise would be a lie. You know, I hadn't been able to move for a week you know and i'm not stupid you know i knew how serious it was but you're still hopeful and no one's ever verbalized it but then all of a sudden there it was someone had said it out loud and i remember the look on my mum's face and, and my wife's face and i had a bit of a weird reaction i suppose you know you think it would just be pure devastation but for me it kind of set the stall out it was a challenge in a way but also right okay so that's where we are you know we're not waiting to find out where we are we are at baseline so anything from mm -hmm. here is up and i said to myself you know in six months time if i look back and i'm still in this position lying in a bed but i've done everything i can to get mm -hmm. to where i could be then i'll be able to live with myself but if I haven't, if I know that I've cut corners or cheated them, I won't be able to deal with it. So I just spent every waking moment from that that moment on staring at my toes, staring at my fingers, just willing them to move. And it's a very bar bizarre sensation telling your body part to move, but it not responding at all because you're so used to being able to do it. And it was only about 36 hours later that my toe wiggled. Um, and, oh my God. Yeah. How did that feel? It, well, it was... <laughs> Well, it was the most amazing moment of my life, to be honest, which again, yeah. talk about perspective, a wiggling toe is becomes the most amazing moment of your life. But of I, rem course, yeah. I remember just sat there and my mum was actually sat outside of the intensive care room and I wiggled it and it moved. But sometimes I was getting spasms. So I thought maybe it's a spasm. And I did it again. It moved. I couldn't feel it, but I could see it moving. Um, and then I just realised, I was like, mum, get in here. I need an independent toe adjudicator. Come and verify this for me. And, and, and it was wiggling. And that for me was the sign, you know, there was something hope. still connecting. That mm. was the hope. That was everything I needed to cling on to. Um, and we were off and running then. 
not not literally i mean i'm still not running to be honest but yeah. uh, we, were, we were we were off and um and you know three months later i was standing four months later i was out of hospital uh nine months later i was out of my wheelchair walking some bits and then a year later i climbed snowden um wow which was quite a quite a drastic change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to do something on the 12 month mark to send a message to all of those other people in hospital who'd been given a prognosis, a guarded prognosis or a negative prognosis that maybe that didn't have to be the case. We did mm. it. it, took nine hours. I opened it up on social media and invited anyone who wanted to come along. I thought, you know, a couple of family members and a few dogs might turn up, but there were 70 people on the start line who oh I didn't gosh, know. Oh wicked. All there for, yeah, that's so cool. with their own different reasons, for their own different reasons. And I just had the most, we just had the most amazing weekend of everyone sharing their stories and just being there for a good cause. And, and that was what planted the seed with mountains for me and the charity that I now run, you know, and the power of the outdoors and challenging yourself and getting outside of your comfort zone and, and what that can do. And it was the first time I really felt some, true purpose again I felt like I was a yeah. able to give back um and that mm -hmm. had been taken that was probably I don't know if you found this but I think that was probably what was the hardest for me to start with is feeling completely useless and everyone having to do everything for me and then all of a sudden you start to feel like there's some good coming from this terrible situation and it's so powerful I just wanted to cling on to that and and I got to the point where I was like well if enough good can come from this situation this bad situation then it will mean it's not a bad situation anymore. And can we get to that point where you wouldn't take it back, where enough good has come for other people that actually you can sit there and go, you know what, that wasn't a bad day. That was meant to happen. That was a good day. Yeah, because there's so much identity wrapped up in our profession, our physical body, our abilities. Um, so you're right, it sort of helps you make sense of things. You find purpose, fulfillment, you you make sense of it all, I guess. And I wondered, what about the physicals then? What is different about your body now? What can you or can you not do that you could do before? Depends how long you got, to be honest. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's very, very different. I mean, so right now um, I have Brown's card, uh, something called Brown's card syndrome, which means my spinal cord has been cut in half quite cleanly. Um, not acr not across, but it's gone from 12 millimetres width to six millimetres width. And that means my right side is very different to my left. So my right side, I have normal function in terms of movement again, but I have no temperature sensation. I have no pain sensation. On the left side, I have poor function from my hand all the way down through my core. I've got about 2% power through my core, uh, right down to my leg. I've got foot drop on my left-hand side, so I have to wear a foot splint. Um, so there's the difference there. And then the main difference in the, the, the non-visible side of spinal cord injuries, which is actually the thing that affects people the most. And um, you can sympathize with a lot of this, you know, it's the bladder issues, the bowel issues. You know, I, I don't, I have a fun properly functioning bladder anymore. So I have to wear bags very regularly, mm. have to sleep with one on, um, bowels, my bowels move a lot slower. So I have to use suppositories every couple of days, mm -hmm. temperature regulation. I now don't sweat from below the nipples. So I overheat very easily mm. um i have spasms involuntary spasms quite a lot so that'll keep you awake a lot at night i think i'm probably awake 10 or 12 times during the night so you you get used to running on tired all the time so compared to before when i was a professional sportsman it's pretty much chalk and cheese yeah however i'm a lot further on and in a lot better place than i was a year ago or two years ago or when i was in a wheelchair or when i was told i was never going to walk again so mentally 
I've regressed massively. But I think it's important to understand the other side and the hidden side of these these disabilities because so many people have to deal with it. You know, you see someone in a wheelchair and you assume it's just the fact they can't walk, but actually there's so much more going on there. You know, if they are a bit tired or a bit grouchy, it might be because of that lack of sleep. And it's just having a bit of sympathy for anyone. And they don't just have to be in a wheelchair. It could be anyone walking down the street might have bladder problems, bowel problems, you know, psychological problems. Mm. And it's just going into everything with a bit more empathy and a bit more sympathy. Um, I think it's, I think that's really important. Yeah, it's it's so valuable what you're saying because it's like this whole thing about be kind. It's literally about you don't know what's going on. Not everything's visible. Not everything's obvious. Like you said, you don't know where that snappy mood comes from or what kind of night that person's had. Um, and I, th- I think that's such a, a great reminder, you giving that example. Well, we talked about Snowden, but what about climbing Everest in your house? Like, what the hell? No, thanks. <laughs> Tell me about that. that. Was a, that <laughs> well, I was just really bored during the first lockdown and uh, Captain Tom had the whole walking around the garden thing locked down. So I thought I need to do something different. But no, it was... I work with a charity called Wings for Life um, who funds spinal cord injury research uh, and they had had their world run cancelled and I think their fundraising would be directly affected. You know, the research they fund would be directly affected by that tough year that it was for all the charities. So I wanted to just do my bit. You know, I wanted to see if I could raise a few hundred quid for them just to feel like I was doing something. Mm. Um, So I decided to climb the height of Everett. Actually, no, do you know what? I just decided to climb the height of Snowden on my parents' staircase because that was symbolic to the first mountain I'd climbed. But naturally... um, one of my friends had climbed the height of Mont Blanc. And when I found that out, I was like, right, I've got to do more than him. So I said Everest. And I don't know why I said Everest, because then when I added it up, I realised that was going to be five and a half thousand times up and down my parents' staircase <laughs> and 12 hours a day for four days. Holes so in the carpet. I decided, <laughs> do you know what? The carpet actually held out really well. It was been a great advert for the carpet, although I did rip both the banisters off the wall um, and leave blood, blood all up the walls because my hand didn't quite fit between the banister and the wall. But, you know, I'm just really glad that it ended up raising so much money because honestly if I'd raised 200 quid like I thought I would I would have been livid by the end of it because it was the most mind-numbing thing I've ever done in my life because I've only got one leg to use as well so it ended up being something like 60,000 single leg step ups oh my god no view at the top just my parents bathroom over and over again but you know we raised 50 grand in the end so it was an incredible oh that's incredible uh, that's amazing especially in lockdown to raise money like that that's incredible for a charity and I deliberately put we, we deliberately we did insta lives over the morning news and the evening news because at oh, the time okay. all they were doing was announcing the death toll mm. and i just thought look there's no there's no point just filling your head with more negativity we all know what we need to do to stay safe now let's just focus on some positive stuff mm-hmm. so if anyone wanted to tune in and watch me walking up and down the stairs instead of watch the death toll they could it was just bizarre it just like took off which was um which was great. But. It's not bizarre because it didn't just fall in your lap and happen. You put it out there. You made it happen. Like it, it, it is all about when people talk about mindset being key and happiness being a choice. Like you really do demonstrate that. I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, like that was in a lockdown. It, yeah. was, it was so shit. <laughs> like, yeah. And you even yeah, made it that was so shit. happy. So. <laughs> Well, you've got to, haven't you? Life's too short to be miserable all the time. Honestly, we just—I just feel like everyone focuses on 
the negative things all the time and we've only got a certain amount of bandwidth in our head and if we're constantly angry at the small stuff or getting frustrated about the things we can't affect the stuff that's happening to us then we're not going to have any time to have fun or some po- have some positivity so I just think it's important to live life in that way to go out there to try things to challenge yourself to have fun to spend time with good people you know and and just enjoy it you know enjoy it because mm. it can be short you know I you know this as well as me you know, I I died three times I had to be resuscitated three times you know that yeah. puts a different spin on your life and you know, I haven't got time to walk around being miserable anymore yeah it's it's great nearly dying isn't it because it really gives you such yeah. like most people don't get the chance to come back and live differently and that's that's you get the gift of not dying that day but you get the gift of a second chance at life and to and to do it differently with that perspective um you know, they always say, like, when do people start living? It's it's when they're told they're dying. They make the bucket list, don't they? And, you know, like, we're still, I say we're still young. You're still young. Um, and we no, have, you're still young as well. Ish, ish. Like, so much has happened to you. You've raised so much money for charities. Um, like you said, you've set up your own charity. You've mentored other people. Um What's left to do? Like, you, I know you need to climb Mont Blanc, don't you? You haven't done that. Uh, yeah, so that's the next big one. Um, I'm going to climb that in September with a guy called Leo Holding and with the help of uh, Berghaus, who are adapting a load of kit to help me because obviously all these issues like bladder issues and mm-hmm. temperature regulation, they're even more important when you're on top of a mountain and it's minus 20. Or, um, so they're really helping and trying to just promote disability in the outdoors and making the outdoors more accessible. But when you say what's next, do you know what? I've got no idea. And that excites me. Mm. And if you'd asked me that question four years ago, when I was playing rugby, not knowing what was around the corner or what would happen after my career ended would have terrified me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the secret of getting to a point where I found that falling back on my values and finding things to do that I enjoy in life that give me purpose, not just trying to chase a status or a paycheck or, you know, it's made me a happier person. I think maybe someone that people want to be around more and and then all these things start happening and these doors start opening and I'm doing things that I never imagined I would ever do um, and I would never had the confidence to do, but just by taking a chance and doing them, life's unraveling in all these weird and wonderful ways. I'll keep trying to climb higher. Um, I'll keep saying yes to stuff. I'll hopefully keep smiling and just see what happens really. And you found the answer to happiness then, haven't you? Because everyone else, like you said, chases money, status, and then you'll never arrive because as soon as you get it, then you you want to elevate to the next level, the next position. But I suppose what you're saying is you're content and you're genuinely happy. I mean, that's quite a powerful statement really, isn't it? Yeah. And it's something that I didn't understand at all before. Yeah. And um, I can understand why people don't. And you get caught up in society and you're being told what you want, what you should want and where you should be. And if you can be happy that you can just walk down the stairs and realise that you're lucky you've got food on the table and a family around you and how beautiful the plants are outside. And I know it all sounds, you know, a bit wishy-washy, no, but it's not. It's, it's not. so true. It's it's just finding happiness in the day-to-day things and the people around you. And then once that happens, all the cool bigger stuff will start happening anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you focus on the bigger stuff first, you'll never get there. And if even if you do, you'll still be stressed trying to get to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I had a moment in my life, right? One of my um, parts of my recovery was I was agoraphobic, stay in the house, scared of crowds, scared of people. I couldn't handle people walking towards me because it felt unpredictable if they might do something. 
And there was a moment where I hadn't realised it, but I'd turned a corner with feeling like that psychologically. And I was outside. And normally when I was outside, it was to get from A to B and to hurry with like anxiety and not acknowledge what was going on. And I was able to stop for the moment and look at the sky and I heard birds. And I thought, God, I haven't stood still and been able to listen to birds and that nature and that sound for for ages because I would have just had a panic attack and I was like wow nature I can listen to nature and not be frightened and that was like amazing that was brilliant for me like I was just like I'm so lucky and so simple isn't it and people would be like well surely not but like know, what a dullard you know? <laughs> 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 yeah. well, like millimeters millimeters to mountains the charity that we started is to help people with mental health problems who are going through mental health because of trauma mm. so whether that be physical or psychological trauma and we use nature we use the outdoors because a lot of people haven't taken the time to just stand there and see space and reconnect with nature and put their phone down and that can be the start the, the first building block to moving forward out of a place that, that's dark. And it's amazing to hear that that was the first step for you as well, of getting out of the house. It was nature, it was hearing the birds, something that's always there, yeah. but we never notice because we're too busy rushing from A to B mm -hmm. or looking at our phones. It's so healing. And I wasn't into nature before, but yeah, no, I can I can really see how what you're doing would Im impact people's lives so positively. So you're the rugby reporter on Channel 4, but you're also going to be one of the key presenters for Channel 4's coverage of Paralympics in Tokyo. Is that right? That is right. A bit daunting, but I can't wait. It's a bit out, more out of my comfort zone. Um, with rugby, I suppose I can still fall back on my knowledge a bit, if you like. But with the Paralympics, mm -hmm. it's um, it's going to be a steep learning curve for sure, but one I'm definitely excited about. Well, I feel like you're not really a guy that's scared of a challenge or a new territory. That's probably your comfort zone, isn't it? Yeah, I like challenging myself, I suppose. I like that sort of nervous energy. And in fact, in a way, the TV stuff and the, the presenting, I know you do it a lot as well. It's it's replaced that adrenaline rush that I lost from sport. Um, mm. it, you know, having having the red light come on top of a camera and knowing that you're live, you know, you can't really describe that until it happens to you and you win and lose together. And I suppose unless there's a chance of it messing up, then it's not as rewarding when it goes well, if it goes well. Um, Do you know what? I love what you said there, though, about the adrenaline rush of like going live and TV presenting and stuff, because I suppose what that really like cements for me is actually life changes for all of us, for some of us more suddenly. And you find new ways to thrill seek, to get fulfillment, to uh, feel all these different things that we feel throughout our lives. And I suppose what your story shows for me is we're incredible, we're resilient, we're adaptable and it sort of takes away the fear a bit that maybe some people do live in fear of life and experiences and you remind me to not be scared. Yeah, I think that that's an important message for, for anyone. I think like too, too often we live within our comfort zones, we live within our bubbles and you know, it's how are you going to progress without sort of testing yourself and stretching yourself? And, and we're also scared of stuff that most of the time is never going to come to pass. It's never going to actually happen anyway. So I like that sense of nervous energy, that feeling of excitement, the, but the butterflies that often people will shy, shy away from, because for me, that's an opportunity for growth. And now I thought I was only able to put myself in those situations through sport, but actually you can put yourself in those situations in any walk of life, you know, and if one door shuts, that doesn't mean that's it for life. You know, I can't play professional sport again. I, mean, I can't play rugby again, but I'm finding exactly, 
exactly the same, if not more of a buzz, doing different things that I never thought I'd be able to do. So it's getting out there and trying new things and, and sort of staying open-minded about stuff. Mm, I really love your energy. Like we're obviously not together in the same room. We're, we're on Zoom, but I feel your energy and uh, you give me hope around about the world and about life. And I'm sure people listening will feel that too. Um, I'm so glad you've written your book and I urge anyone that wants more because that's, that's kind of how you leave me feeling. I want more of you, you know, because <laughs> it's like quite infectious. So for people that are listening, please do go out and buy Lucky. And where else can we follow you? Where's your blog? My blog and, and most of my stuff I do through Instagram on Ed Jackson 8, but all of my handles are Ed Jackson 8 across all social media and my website. So it's pretty much straightforward. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and um, being like so open like you said, it's not easy, especially when you've been a private person. So I want to express gratitude to you and say thank you for giving us a, a little bit of you. No, thank you, Katie. Honestly, I've got a massive amount of admiration for you. So it's been a real pleasure and hopefully we'll get to meet each other in person one day. Yeah, I would like that. I won't come up Mount Everest or anything like that. <laughs> but yeah, I'll stand at the bottom of like a sandwich or something. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.